Amen. Well, good morning. Now open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our love and thanks to Brady and Diana for leading us in song to our King, the King, the one and only King who is worthy to receive it. I pray everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I see we have a number of families that are still out for Thanksgiving, be with their families. We have so much to be thankful for. We are, we are to be a people that are marked by Thanksgiving and joy. I am thankful for salvation, for Christ, for my family, and I am thankful for you, this congregation. It is a joy and a privilege to walk with you as your pastor. And to that end, if you've come this morning to hear something new or novel from the pulpit, a forewarning, you've come to the wrong place. Every path we will tread has been walked by thousands before. We will walk in the well-worn paths that have been trod by centuries of faithful followers. Some may think it odd to open a message declaring that I have nothing new to say. Far from being odd, it should be the greatest comfort one could hear. Down through history, every error of doctrine, every introduction of heresy, Every theological departure from truth has come from a never-ending desire and pursuit to say something new. To find a new twist, a hot take, to look clever. Finding something that no one else has ever seen or discovered. Well, spoiler alert, it's not there. The truth of God's word, the worn paths of the gospel are fully discovered fully revealed, and are settled for eternity in the pages of Scripture. Isaiah 30, verse 21, this is the way, now walk in it. In a culture where the new is always heralded and the old is despised, where the new model is always an improvement on the old model, beware that thinking in your walk with Christ. If you are a seasoned saint, mature in the Lord, you know the path. And even though that path is worn, does it not still refresh you when you get out and walk on it? Of course it does. And even as you walk along that well-worn path, even though the path has not changed, we recognize that the environment will always be new. It may be raining, it may be sunny along that path. There may be birds or no birds. It may be still or the winds may be howling. But the path is the same. Saints, if you feel tall grass around your ankles as you walk or you see no footsteps before you stop, go back to the path laid out for his children. There you will find safety and fullness of joy. So what then is your response to the preacher telling you I have nothing new or novel to say to you this morning? That is good news, and I should expect nothing other. Give us the old story, drawn from the finished work of Scripture, and in that we will rejoice and be re refreshed. We will be rebuked and renewed within its pages. If that's what you're looking for, you've come to the right place. Amen? 
Amen. Well, last week we completed our two-part series detailing the religious trials of Jesus, titled A Fitting Trial. As we highlighted the hypocrisy and the illegality and the wickedness of the, this entire show trial as Jesus was first hauled before Annas and then Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin. We took great pains to highlight the many laws that were broken in Jesus' arrest and detention by the very ones who claimed to be the keepers of the law. In truth, we witnessed an arrest that was now in search of a crime. With one false witness after another paraded in front of the religious leaders, what a very odd coincidence that every charge leveled was a capital offense. Every accusation carried with it the penalty of death. Whether it's insurrection or blasphemy or simply claiming a king higher than Caesar, the goal was death. While Jesus stayed silent before his accusers, while he opened not his mouth against the lies spoken about him in accordance with prophecy, when a statement of truth was made by Caiaphas, it was then that Jesus opened his mouth. When asked by the high priest, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one, now Jesus will speak. Later telling Pilate that I was born and came into the world to testify of the truth. And in that moment, Jesus handed them the very confession they sought. In the ultimate declaration of truth, Jesus sealed his death. Jesus responded to Caiaphas with the Tetragrammaton, didn't he? With the name of God, Jesus said, I am. And he went further. He upped the ante, declaring that you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is showing himself not only as God, but his attribute of God being that of ultimate judge. That's the irony here, isn't it? You think you're sitting in judgment over me, but I will be the one who will judge you on that day. Quoting Daniel 7, there was no doubt what Jesus was claiming. As the high priest tore his garment, feigning indignation on the outside while smiling on the inside, thinking Jesus had walked right into the trap. And in that vein, we beheld the role of the wicked in the plan of God. Being encouraged that it is no different today. Where the wicked seem to have the upper hand. We lament as we did with the psalmist in Psalm 73 that we read this morning. As he saw the wicked appear to prosper. How does it end? But then he discerned their end. He saw what happens to them in the end. And the eyes of faith have vision to see that end. So what an encouragement that is. That we are on God's timetable. God's plan A from the beginning. Even though the wicked seem to triumph. Scripture tells us what is true. It tells us where the train came from and where it's headed to. And we take great comfort in that. And finally, our scene was left as Jesus stood as our substitute, as he was spit upon, blindfolded, beat with their fists, mocking him with slaps in the face for the glory set before him. He endured this. 
knowing he is prepared, he has been strengthened for the immense suffering that lies ahead, and not merely the pain of crucifixion, but for the weight of sin being brought to bear upon him who had known no sin. And yet while all this has been going on in the home of Annas and Caiaphas, which by the way, though these were separate trials, be reminded that they they essentially lived in the same compound. Remember that they were related and families lived together. So Jesus' movement from from Annas to Caiaphas was likely just a, a short walk across the courtyard. But yet while all this is going on inside with Jesus, between about 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., another scene entirely has been happening outside, bringing us to today's text. Over the next two weeks, we'll begin our look at this very famous scene known as Peter's denial. We're going to swim in some very difficult waters of truth and doctrine. Many times throughout this scene, the Holy Spirit may Wield a mirror to your own heart. I know he did for me. As we look to Peter's failure, not only is it a caution and a warning for all believers, it's also one of the most beautiful stories of restoration and beauty in all of Scripture. And what does any of that have to do with Swiss cheese? We have vast territory to cover this morning, so with that, let us look to our text this morning, Mark 14, 66 through 72. Mark 14, 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the entryway. And when the servant girl saw him, she began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again, he was denying it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are also a Galilean. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said the statement to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And throwing himself down, he began to cry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in few places of Scripture are we more confronted with a mirror into our own soul and our own hearts. Heavenly Father, we approach this text today as dependent creatures, ones that need you. Lord, as we look to this text, we ask that the Holy Spirit would meet every need. Lord, that while I do not know everyone or everything that has walked through this door, you do. And we ask that you would wield this, that the arrow might find its mark in good aim. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, during what would be known as the Six-Day War in 1967, that was a conflict between Israel and a coalition of surrounding Arab nations, one of the areas of greatest conflict was up in the northeastern part of Israel. It's on the border between Israel and Syria. This is an area known 
as the Golan Heights. In my last trip to Israel, I journeyed extensively through this area, and and still to this day, there are old bombed-out tanks on the sides of the roads and barbed wire all around. It's a place that has rarely known peace or stability. And as Israel battled Syria in the north during that war, Israel was at a major disadvantage due to topography. Well, the Syrians had the high ground. So nearly the entire Golan area, indeed the entire Galilee area, sat under the threat of Syrian guns. This was one of the most heavily guarded and fortified areas in Israel. Even today, most in here have heard of the infamous Golan Heights. And while the Syrians had the border well fortified, there was one area where there were no Syrian guards or guns. And the reason for that was that there were immense cliffs in that small area, and they sheared nearly straight up, seemingly impassable. There was no need for the Syrians to guard this area. The topography alone made for a solid defense. One night, a contingent of Israeli bulldozers and machinery took to these sheer cliffs, cutting out steps, making the area climbable. Before the Syrians knew it, tanks and soldiers came flooding through that seemingly impossible pass, flanking the Syrians and taking miles of territory back. The place the Syrians thought they were the strongest was actually their weakest. Their place of perceived strength was where they fell. Their overconfidence in an impassable terrain was their undoing. Scripture is replete with examples of misplaced confidence and pride in one's own abilities, often with very tragic consequences. And in the mountains of Solomon's wisdom, perhaps his his magnum opus comes in Proverbs 16, 18, declaring that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Here as we look to Peter's denial of our Lord is thrice denial of even knowing Jesus. We will be confronted with many hard truths. We pray we are given grace to gaze intently into the mirror of Scripture before us. So let us look to our first and only verse today, verse 66. Verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Well, as we set this scene, we've chosen to stop on this opening verse for good reason. It is our first aim, before we dive into a a detailed exposition of the text, to explore and to understand how we got here. How Peter got here. How did we find ourselves set up in such a situation to begin with? Did Peter just wake up and find himself here? Well, you'll notice the title for our message today and... No doubt it will spawn some, and has spawned some inquisitive looks. How odd. Well, in aviation, but in many areas of risk analysis, there's a principle that's known as the Swiss cheese effect. Now, this is a cheese that's most famous for its holes scattered throughout it. So if we have a block of Swiss cheese that is, that is cut up into slices, 
Imagine that each slice we make, each one we stack up, each slice represents one decision or an event. Another slice might be a mechanical failure. Another slice might be a poor night's sleep or distractions at home. All of these are factors. All of these slices stack up. And eventually, if you stack up enough slices of Swiss cheese, enough holes in the cheese are going to line up and something bad is going to get through. When accident investigators look at an airplane crash, it's never one mistake. It's always a chain of events and factors and circumstances that led up to the failure. The holes in the cheese lined up and it led to catastrophic failure. Today, the Swiss cheese effect has smacked our dear Peter right between the eyes. It is imperative that we understand that it wasn't one moment of weakness or decision that made this denial possible. You and I are accident investigators this morning. As we look at the twisted metal and the wreckage of Peter's denial of Christ, what are the holes in the Swiss cheese that made this possible? That will be the focus of our message as Peter stands below in the courtyard. How did we get here? In an accident, causal factors often occur much earlier than one would think. Factors from long ago can have an effect today. Our first clue, our first slice of the Swiss is revealed not in the Gospels, but of all places we see the first factor in the book of Job. And there we learn in the opening chapter something remarkable about the interaction of God with Satan. Here we see God gives Satan permission to bring calamity upon Job. Satan was given permission to attack with an attempt to destroy Job and his faith, to cause him to turn against God. Well, it appears that arrangement in the heavenlies has not changed. Listen to Jesus in Luke's account of the Last Supper in the upper room. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. There is an active threat against you, Peter, and I'm going to call you Simon here twice, because it is through your old man that Satan will attack. To go with our analogy, the pilot has received a warning, a caution. There will be extra dangers on this flight. Be careful. Be, high, be on high alert. Heighten senses at every turn. We have it on the best information. This flight will be attacked. How ought we to respond to such a report? We've got the threat advisory from an omniscient source, from an all-knowing source. It can be trusted. 
But like the captain of the Titanic, he's got the iceberg alert right in his hands. And it was hand-delivered to Peter, notarized and all. And what does that omniscient, divine source do to mitigate the risk of Peter's flight that we know will be attacked? Beloved, do we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous? You bet we do. Thus, what are Jesus' very next words to Peter in the upper room? But I have prayed for you, Simon. I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The very one who has given the pilot his starkest warning has taken steps to mitigate the risk of attack. More on that next week as we get to the redemption and restoration of Peter later on. But let that first frame our thoughts. Even though Peter is going to be shot up, He is going to be attacked from outside and inside. Just as he was warned, he will survive the accident. Peter's faith in the midst of his failure, his faith did not fail. Unless God is in the habit of not answering Jesus' prayers, Unless Jesus can lose one that is given into his hand by the Father, not hardly. The saint of God will persevere. More on that as we move forward. How else do we find ourselves here in this courtyard? Both at the time Peter is and the place Peter is. Meaning out in the courtyard and not standing inside side by side, as a co-conspirator with his master and Lord. What's another slice of the Swiss flying us toward the failure? What is Peter's response? What is his response to the warning of the Lord in the upper room? That Satan is gunning for you, Peter. Satan has asked for you specifically to take you down. How does Peter respond? Well, we'd all like to think that our reply to that warning would have been to to fall on our face, (laughs) to cry out for mercy and help, to be humbled and and to cling to the feet of our Savior. Oh, but Peter is going to take another slice off the old block. How does he respond to Jesus' warning? But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And then again on the way to the garden, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Slice, slice. What's the problem here? Well, Peter has every confidence in himself, doesn't he? His boast was not in the Lord. His boast was in Peter's superior spirituality. His chest is puffed out. So seeing first the overarching sin of pride, that's easy to see. 
And nearly every way we err in our walk with Christ, trace the root, and we will find the genesis of, the root of pride in there somewhere, guaranteed. So spawned out of pride, what then is the actual error of Peter's thinking? Why is this thinking setting Peter up for a fall? Well, a question for Harrison Hills. Is Peter a born-again believer at this point? Has Peter come to Christ in repentance and faith, forsaking his old man, being regenerated by the Spirit? Yes. That is key number one that we must understand in our quest to apply this rightly. Peter is a believer. Peter is born again. Peter has declared in front of all that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, with Jesus telling Peter that it is God who's revealed this to him. Jesus even gave him power to cast out demons and to heal the sick, to authenticate that message. Peter's forsaken all. He's left his full-time fishing business and his family to be a disciple. Peter is a Christian. Only a short time after Peter's denial, he'll stand in front of thousands at Pentecost and proclaim, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourself know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Mere weeks after his denial, Peter would preach 3,000 souls into the kingdom, cutting them to the heart. We must grasp this if we are to grapple with this failure, this denial of the Lord. Peter is a believer. Peter is born again. And yet here we are, Peter, below in the courtyard. So first, Satan asks to sift Peter. Slice. Peter didn't listen to the Lord's warnings. Slice. Peter thought he was super spiritual. He boasted in his abilities to withstand trials. Slice. Now pause there. Why is that such an error, to have such a brash confidence? Aren't we to be confident overcomers? Aren't we to be victorious over sin, strong, strong, strong? Are we not more than conquerors in Christ? What was Peter's major error here? Peter failed to understand. He failed to grasp the power of his old man. Peter let a dragon out of his sight. He caught a tiger by the tail. What is the reality of our time here on earth as Christians? What is the state of our old man? What is the state of our flesh? Is it dead? Would Scripture exhort you 
to put to death daily the deeds of something that's already dead? Of course not. Oh, but pastor, I've been given a new heart. He's taken my heart of stone and he's given me a new heart of flesh and I'm a new creation. Yes, saint, you are. But that new heart, that new creation, those new affections, all that wonderful newness that was given when God saved you is wrapped and trapped in fallen flesh. Are you redeemed? Yes. Is there redemption still to come? Yes. That fallen flesh has yet to be redeemed. Yes, your soul has been redeemed. Now your flesh and your body, that's another story. And this isn't a difficult concept to grasp. Most of us proved it before even getting out the door to church this morning. There is an old man present, isn't there? Tell me he's not. There is a flesh that we must actively say no to. Scripture shows us that our wonderful newness of heart, our newness of life as a Christian, are wrapped and trapped in stinking flesh. That there's a fullness of redemption yet to come. We do not get to experience that on this side of eternity. And may I share with you, beloved, that truth is one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life. To have this new heart, this new life, this new mind, new desires, living in such close proximity to the rotting flesh that it's incarcerated in. That is the constant lament of the Christian. Hear Paul in Romans 7.15 For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul goes on, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I hate this. I have this new life with new affections, and it's a sweet smell. And every day I wake up and I smell garbage. This is the lament of the Christian life. That my new nature must live in such close proximity to my rotting flesh. And that means, beloved, that everything we do is tainted. And we know it. And we know it. What a struggle. That means that even the most altruistic, selfless action... The life that is lived so generously, in truth, all of it is tainted. None of it is completely pure. Somewhere in that action is a whiff of the flesh. It may be big, it might be little, but it's there. And that vexes the Christian. Oh, wretched man that I am. Hear Paul. We long to put off this flesh. We long for the day when mortality will put on immortality to the point that Paul said he would be happy to go home to Christ to be rid of this stinking vessel of sin. It's a war of such close proximity 
that it can be positively draining sometimes, saints. That's our fight. We live with a constant awareness of a lingering corruption. And we long to be free of it. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That constant awareness of the old man, that whiff that we smell, that corrupted motive or intent that wars against that new heart within you is meant to keep us humble, to keep us dependent, to remind us Peter lost sight of that old dragon. If that be the case, What does that say about how we conduct ourselves as redeemed believers who are wrapped in falling flesh and walking on a fallen planet? What did Peter need to hear that night? What do we as believers need to hear right now in light of the warning Peter has received, in light of the very conscience within you that tells you it is so? What is the counsel of Scripture in light of these difficult truths? It is this. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Overconfidence in ourselves, in our abilities, in light of our condition is the path to pain. It is an accident waiting to line up another slice off the old block. Do not trust yourself. Put no confidence in the flesh. If a believer like Peter can do this, how tightly ought we to cling to our Savior? As long as we walk this earth, our condition is one of complete dependency. We have a latent weakness that must be daily contended with and never let out of our sight. Yes, it's a fight. Yes, it's a labor. Welcome to sanctification, saints. Peter will never forget this lesson, will he? In fact, our dear brother Grant on the back of your bulletin this morning quoted an old church father that said every time Peter heard a rooster crow, he would weep. Yet again, it's not one mistake that takes us down, is it? One doesn't go right from their prayer closet to denying Christ, do they? It's layer upon layer, slice upon slice. Watch the holes. They're lining up. What did Jesus command his disciples, command Peter to do in the garden? Pray. Pray why? Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Did Peter do that? The pilot was asleep. Slice. The warning placed into our hands tells us that the place of safety is walking close to Christ. By his side. Where was Peter? Well, first in Gethsemane, when the Roman soldiers came, Peter was out ahead of the Savior, wasn't he? Ready to fight, cutting off Malchus's ear, 
Peter's flying out ahead of the master in a place you were never called to, doing something you were never called to do. Danger. Getting out ahead of your Lord. Then where was he? After Jesus is led away from the garden. Oh, now Peter followed at a distance. Are we running out ahead of Christ? Making things happen in our own power and strengths? Are we following Christ too far behind? Ashamed to be identified with him? Slice, slice. Here it is. I'm holding the stack of slices together and I'm holding it up to my eyes and I can see daylight coming through one of the holes. Here comes an accident. How many slices has Peter laid down now as he enters this courtyard? A wisdom would show, eyes to see would show Peter was a sitting duck. Jesus told him he was a sitting duck. You think you're covered by impenetrable topography. You think the sheer cliffs will protect you, Peter. Think again. Jesus told Peter that, warned him of that. Peter didn't listen. Slice. There's an opening to attack. And it might be exactly where you think you're the strongest. But the bulldozers of the flesh are making inroads as we speak. The demonic hordes, the inward lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life can come flooding through where you thought you were the strongest. So where exactly was the battle lost for Peter? Beloved, it wasn't in the courtyard. It was long before. Take heed, Christian lest you fall. Peter walked with Jesus for three years, having the most privileged journey to faith that one could imagine, side by side with Jesus, the best teaching, the best preaching, the best application, the best experiences and missions, there even on the Mount of Transfiguration, with the Lord of glory shimmering before him. Tell me, saints, how cautious ought you and I to be? Listen to Paul again in Romans 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Paul tells us that there is a war with the new creation you have become and the rotting flesh that we're wrapped in. Paul goes on in Romans, I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Your general, 
the Lord Jesus is telling you that the Christian life is a wartime footing. Yes, we have an enemy who seeks to destroy. And Satan did demand to sift and tempt Peter. But even more so, our biggest enemy is far closer. Mingled so close that we can catch its foul scent every day. Wrapped and trapped in fallen flesh. Incarcerated within it. But what a purpose that brings. Beloved, that longing to be rid of it is what makes us long for heaven more and to pursue holiness more. It is a blessed discontent and battle that drives us toward our Savior. Peter hung by a thread. And we cannot grasp the denial of Peter unless we know how he got there how each one of us as fellow believers could get there. Peter was toast before he even walked into that courtyard. And that's why all it took was a little servant girl and a simple question to knock this giant to the ground. Are we boastful? Have we spiritual accomplishments in our lives? Take heed, lest you fall. The proud don't listen to warnings. They've closed their ears. They charge on ahead. And soon you look up and you're in no man's land. You're off course. You can't see or hear the voice of the master. And now fear sets in. What then, Peter? The instinct of self-preservation then kicks in and you fall back in retreat and now you follow Christ at a distance. When you ought to pray, do you sleep? When you ought to read your word, does another entertaining delight capture your time and affection? These are the ways the holes line up in our lives and accidents happen. The battles that brought Peter down, the choices and attitudes that flew Peter into such danger will be repeated a thousand times over in each life. It is well that we stop. We can't get past one verse and look deeply into that mirror. Paul, back in our text of 1 Corinthians 10, that we looked at, warning us to take heed lest we fall. He proceeds that by saying in verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. Meaning we are meant to take Peter's accident and learn from it. That we might not make the same mistakes. Now there's a well-known saying in in aviation, that rules and regulations are written in blood. Meaning we do something this way because someone died. An accident happened. Every year, of course, some of you know, I have to go back for for retraining for for my functions as a pilot. It involves simulator training and ground school. Part of that ground school every year is evaluating and analyzing accidents or major mistakes that happened that year. 
And we explore what decisions were made along the way that caused the holes to line up in that Swiss cheese. And every time, we can follow the breadcrumb trail of choices and decisions that brought them down. Those things are written down for our instruction. Peter did not walk from his prayer closet to the courtyard of denial. Many steps led to this dark early morning that Peter would never forget. How broad may the Holy Spirit apply this to every life? No calamitous shipwreck has occurred in a life without warning and many steps. A man or woman does not simply stumble into pornography or have an affair. A troubled relationship or marriage does not come out of the blue. It's many layers. How faithful, beloved, was Jesus to Peter all along the way to call him away from danger, to not only give warning, but to directly intercede on Peter's behalf, to pray for Peter that his faith might not fail. Saints, that reality has not changed. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. I have prayed for you, Harrison Hills, that your faith might not fail. I have prayed for you, husband and wife. I have prayed for you, young teenager, that your faith might not fail. And the anchor will hold if you are his own. And even if, even if you are tempted out of the blue, with no warning, a sudden attack, dear one, even then, no temptation has overcome you. That is not common to man. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But it was many choices that led Peter to this courtyard. You may never see Swiss cheese the same way again. This morning, beloved, Jesus' faithfulness to Peter is Jesus' faithfulness to each one of us. He's given warning. He's given caution. Even as he has called you to pray, he has called for you. May we not get out ahead of him in our own pride and ability. May we not follow at a distance in fear. Just a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus, is my plea. Daily walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have written this for our instruction. Lord, we thank you that our heroes of the faith are not put on a pedestal. But Lord, we are allowed to see every failure. And we are allowed to learn from that failure. Holy Spirit, we know that each one has received this message on a personal level. 
Heavenly Father, we ask that as we go forth from here, in this season of thanksgiving and of celebration, Lord, that this would go down deep. Lord, that we would take heed lest we fall. Lord, we are dependent upon you this morning. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.